0: Well, good afternoon, Uh, Resurrection. It's truly an honor uh, to have this opportunity to preach God's Word uh, to you today. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can grab them and turn to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have no rival. There truly is none like you. Would you give us ears to hear what you have for us in your word? Help us to see the beauty and power of your anointed one, Jesus Christ. Let him be glorified now and forevermore. Amen. <clears throat> On February. 22nd, 1980, during the medal round of the Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, uh, New York, the U.S. men's hockey team lined up to play the Soviet Union. The Soviets had won the gold medal in the uh, five, the six previous Winter Olympics, um, and they were, of course, heavily favored to win this one as well. The U.S. team was led by coach Herb Brooks and was comprised of mostly amateur players. After after the the long games, the US US edged out the Soviets to win the gold medal. This game has become to to be known as the miracle on ice and is rated by many to be the biggest upset in sports history. Now, the reason I share this story is to point out that this is not how it works with the Lord. Our text does not paint the Lord as just one that is favored to win in the battle against his enemies. There will, be no, or there will never be an upset with him. He will always be triumphant. God has no rivals. Therefore, we can take refuge in him. This is the big idea of our text, Because the Lord reigns over all, over all the chaos in our current world, the turmoils of life, sickness, and yes, even death itself, we are called to take refuge in Him. Because the Lord reigns over all, we are called to take refuge in Him. Now, before diving into this text, I want to give a brief context for Psalm 2. If you were to summarize the whole book of the Psalms, you could do it with this one phrase. Our God reigns. And this is the emphasis of Psalm 2. Psalm 1 and 2 are placed at the beginning of the book as a twofold introduction. Psalm 1 gives us the purpose of the book, and Psalm 2 gives us the message of the book. One of the reasons for linking the two psalms is because uh, we see the theme of the blessed in the first verse of Psalm 1, if you look down at your Bibles, And in the last verse of Psalm 2, blessed is the man in verse 1 who um, does the following, and blessed are all those who take refuge in him in Psalm 2, verse 12. So there's a juxtaposition or a contrast between the way of the blessed and the way of the wicked. We saw last week that the way of the wicked perishes, does not last. Chapter 1 Verse 4 says the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Or verse 6 says that the wicked will perish. Contrast that with the way of the blessed. It does not perish, but rather he abides and flourishes. Verse 2 and 3 say that the one who meditates on God's law is like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding fruit. Its leaf does not wither. And in all that they do, they prosper. It's clear that there's a comparing of the way of the wicked that perishes and the way of the righteous which abides. Now, as we turn to Psalm 2, we see this continued theme of the way of the blessed and the way of the wicked. But it's important to note that Psalm 2 is a sort of coronation hymn that inaugurates the davidic covenant and kingship we'll look more at that in a bit but for now uh, god made a covenant with david in second samuel 7 promising to set up his reign over his people and david was to carry out god's decree on earth and bring peace to god's people david was the promise or david was promised that his throne would be established forever and that he would have offspring to sit on his throne forever and Psalm 2 is therefore a coronation hymn and a celebration of this very promise to establish David's throne for him and his descendants after him. Now, we often read the Psalms and immediately think um, of, of Christ in the context uh, of which we live because we live post the resurrection. And it's, that's a great way to read the Psalms. And if you were to be asked in Sunday school and who is this psalm about and you said Jesus you would get the answer correct (laughs) but we should also remember that this psalm has a more it has more than just a messianic fulfillment which of course is very important it had great meaning for the original audience as well for the immediate hearers this sort of coronation psalm would have caused the people to think of the royal covenant made with David and his descendants they would have heard this as a call to trust in the Lord, that He will rule the earth through His anointed servant David and David's descendants after him. The people would have thought uh, after reading the psalm, Yes, and Amen. The Lord will be on our side and He will conquer our enemies. Ancient Israel faith stood on two main pillars one was the temple, and the other was the Davidic kingship and His rule. So to hear the psalm sung and read would have been a great encouragement to the people. Now as we turn to our text, there's three things I want to look at. The first is the enemy. The second is the anointed. And the third is the imperative. The, the enemy, the anointed, and the imperative. First, the enemy. Verses one to three. In verses one to three, we see the scheming of the kings of this world. They rage, they plot, they set themselves against the Lord and His anointed. In Hebrew, uh, anointed is Messiah, and in Greek is Christos. So we're probably both familiar with both of those terms. They're not just uh, these people that set themselves against the Lord are not just indifferent to the Lord and His anointed but are actively scheming and plotting against him. This is parallel to the folly that is mentioned in chapter 1, verse 1. There is the counsel of the wicked and the way of the sinners and the seat of the scoffers. But this, of course, is contrasted with the way of those who are blessed. In fact, the Hebrew word for meditate In chapter 1, verse 1, and on his law, the righteous meditates day and night, is the same word for plot in chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? So there's a parallel between the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. The godly meditate on God's law and the wicked meditate on rebellion. Now, I want to just pause here. Because isn't it more often than we would like true of us? We are often clever in plotting evil rather than plotting about how to do righteousness. Even after coming to know Christ, we can sometimes think long and hard about how we can get away with our sins. Maybe it's with our spouses. You might think, you know, how can I say this in a way that's not obviously sinful but gets my point across. Maybe it's passive aggressive. Or how can I cover up this sexual immorality so that nobody finds out? We ought to set our minds to meditate on doing good rather than meditating on how to carry out our evil desires. Now, verse 3 gives the motive for this rebellion. It talks of bursting bonds and casting away cords. These bonds and cords refer to the yoke that would be placed on an animal when it was pulling or carrying a load. Uh, These evil nations wanted to, as it were, throw off this yoke. They desired to be free from any allegiance or constraints that the Lord would put on them. And the goal of this rebellion was lordship. These sinful nations didn't want to be subject to the Lord, but they rather wanted to be lords themselves. Again, this throwing off allegiance to the king is what was talked about in chapter 1, verse 1. In the counsel of the wicked and the way of the sinners in the seat of the scoffers, they desired to be free from the constraints of God. They wanted to be their own lords and determine for themselves what was right and what was wrong course we do not need to look far to see this same casting off of the lordship of christ today i read a book uh a few months back that was kind of about some of these current cultural trends it wasn't a christian book but it was really insightful in explaining much of the goals of these newer uh newer trends Uh, and their goal is to throw off traditional moral Norms. If anything had the whiff of normativity or held some sort of status quo, or the way things have been done in the past, it needed to be abandoned. And most of these norms were largely just biblical norms. And so, things like the roles of men and women, or even that there were only two categories as men and women, uh, if these were not abandoned, it was seen as oppressive or hateful. And I'm sure all of you have seen examples of this, and I don't need to list them. And it is right for us to see all of this as rebellion against the Lord himself. And the true reason for opposition to the Lord is a hatred of the restraints of godliness. The true reason for opposition to the Lord in our psalm here is a hatred for the restraints of godliness. The society we live in tempts us to believe that true happiness comes through personal freedom, in sexual abandon, unbridled material possessions, and all-around self-centeredness. And we can achieve, through these, we can achieve true personal happiness. But I don't want to just critique those rebellious people out there. I wonder how you respond to the temptations from the world to cast off. The ways of the Lord. Do you find yourself compromising on God's standards? Maybe you think you know these sexual standards uh, don't seem, or they seem rather, they do seem rather restrictive. What's wrong if there's only two, if there's two consenting adults? After all, I don't want to be labeled homophobic or uh, bigoted. Or maybe you think uh, if if it is. Uh, if it's a way I can have a good time with my friends and coworkers, so what's so bad about having one more drink than I should? Maybe it's a little different. Maybe it's there's so much sexual promiscuity around us in our culture, in our TVs and movies. Is it really much worse to be clicking on this website? There is so much pressure from the world to get you and I to conform to its ways, especially with the 24-7 connectedness that we have with each other. But is your thinking and your actions shaped more by Scripture or more by the world? The only way we can have, or the the only way we can know if we are meditating, uh, if our minds are shaped more by Scripture, is if we're meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. If we are not, in God's word regularly, reading it or hearing it preached every Lord's Day, I don't know how we can expect to stand against the pressure from the world to conform to its standards. In fact, I do not doubt the nations and the peoples in verses 1 to 3 who desired to burst the bonds and cast away the cords of the Lord. I'm sure they thought what they were doing was right. We have to take heed to guard our hearts and our minds beneath the truth of God's word. We ought to follow in the way of the blessed man who meditates day and night on the law of the Lord. Second point, the anointed, verses 4 to 9. Now we see the Lord's response to this rebellion in 4 to 6. The Lord is not challenged, Rather, he laughs at the wicked's schemes and plots against him and his anointed. The wicked make their plots, but the Lord's response is laughter and derision. The Lord cannot be challenged. We see in verses 5 to 9 that the Lord executes his judgment through his earthly king. It is through the Davidic kingship that God will establish his universal rule over the earth. The king mentioned in verse 6, uh, I have set my king on Zion, is the son mentioned in verse 7. You are my son, today I have begotten you. When you, phrase it, when you hear that phrase, you are my son, today I have begotten you, I'm sure that it immediately reminds you of other places in the New Testament that speak of Jesus in this way, such so as Acts 13 and Hebrews 1, or even at Jesus' baptism, uh, when God says, This is my son. But again, the immediate context refers to David, King David, and his, uh, the ones who are to rule after him. You don't need to turn there, but in 2 Samuel 7, we mentioned it before, we have the Lord's covenant with David. In it, the Lord says to David and to his descendants, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Therefore, this son and father language was used with the kings in the line of David to describe God as their father. The king... As a son was to respond to the interests and the desires of his father. And to represent the will of God to his people. He was to execute God's rule and his decrees on earth in the nation of Israel. Verse 8 of our text here says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Because God is the ruler of all of the earth, his anointed one, the king, can ask for the expansion of his rule from the one who owns all of it. This was the promise to expand uh, and prosper Israel under the king's rule. It goes on in verse 9 to say that the king and his kingdom will break those rebellious nations with a rod to a a pot of clay. Now I thought about bringing in a pot of clay and a rod to demonstrate that, but I figured you could get the point. Uh, Though these nations plot and schemed against the king, the king will have complete rule over them because the Lord is on his side. Now, for those of you who don't know the story of Israel and David's rule and reign, it did not always, or even most of the time, look like this. In fact, in the very next psalm, in Psalm 3, is a psalm of David fleeing from his own son who is trying to overthrow his kingdom or the, think again of the extreme crisis of the Babylonian exile where Israel was taken captive by a foreign nation. And the Israelites would have lost both the temple, which was their place of worship, and they would have been ruled by a foreign king. So you can imagine them hearing Psalm 2 read and them looking around thinking, Huh, you know, I, didn't, I don't know how possibly this can turn out the way that we're reading here. Because our enemies seem to have great success over us. They felt this tension. And they knew that there must come one who was to accomplish this reign and rule over the nations, as this psalm describes. Now the Jews of Jesus' time would have been expecting this sort of rule from the Messiah. They would have thought that the anointed would come and restore Israel and set up this kingdom... That's why there are times throughout the Gospels and Acts when the disciples go to Jesus and they ask him, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom? They thought that there would be one who would establish the Davidic dynasty for good and bring the nations into subjection and bring peace to Israel. But what all of these human kings of Israel and Judah were unable to do, God would do and accomplish through his anointed one, Jesus the Messiah. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment and realization of this. He is the one who has come to set up the Lord's ultimate rule. But it is not in the way that most expected. Christ did come and conquer. He is the one who said, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Christ is the one who rules heaven and earth. Christ Further, gives the church the command to disciple the nations in Matthew 28. That is to bring them under submission, or as verse 12 says of our text, to kiss the Son. It is not through a violent force, but it is through the message of the Gospel. It is through the Gospel that we are called to bring the nations to submit to the Lordship of Christ, the Ruler of all. And in this sense the gospel is a sort of iron rod that is used to bring the nations into submission to Christ. Of course, there will one day be, or there will be a day when Christ will return and this iron rod will be the wrath of God and the still unrepentant nations will be brought into subjection by force. But as for now, Christ has established his rule and the church is called to disciple the nations through the power of the gospel. Now, this means that regardless of the craziness of our times, Christ still has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the true fulfillment of this psalm and is the anointed one. And until he returns, he has called us to disciple the nations and to bring them to submission to Christ, the power of the gospel. That is our great commission. Now, when you look at the tumultuous times that we live in, Do you believe that nothing can truly rival the reign of Christ? When the nations rage against the Lord, His response is to laugh and to mock. The reason is because it is foolish to think that anything can come even close to rivaling the Lord. What is your response to the plots and the schemes of the church or against the church in your faith? Is it fear? Compromise? You want to hide your faith? Or do you have a faith that no matter how tumultuous and anti-Christian the times get, the Lord is the one who reigns over heaven and earth? I love the way John Calvin puts it when he says, When the ungodly have mustered their forces, and when, depending on their vast numbers, their riches, and their means of defense, they not only pour forth their proud blasphemies, but uh, furiously assault heaven itself. We may safely laugh at them to scorn, relying on this one consideration, that he whom they are assailing is the God who is in heaven. I think sometimes we can dishonor Christ, our King, by thinking that his rule actually might be rivaled, and that his gospel is not really an effective strategy to bring about any change. Because the Lord laughs at the threats of his enemies, do we do the same? Do we believe that everyone will one day bow the knee to Christ? Do you believe the gospel, or that the gospel can bring all who do not know Christ into union with him, that it can actually bring salvation to the lost? Or do you think, what can the gospel do for this coworker of mine or my family member who's beyond? So it seems beyond redemption. They're so far gone in the craziness of the times. We might not say that, but we functionally can believe that. We need to believe that the rod of the gospel really does have the power to break the vessel of man's heart. Friends, we are to have the fullest confidence that our king reigns over heaven and earth and nothing can rival his rule. And the rod of Christ's gospel can save to the uttermost to bring those who are far into the safe refuge of Christ. Lastly and briefly, the third point, the imperative, a call to take refuge, verses 10 to 12. This last section culminates in the warning to the wicked uh, and the, the wicked nations and the peoples, and in turn to us as well. They are to serve the Lord with fear. This is, again, because He has no rival. Also, they are to kiss the Son, His anointed. In other words, they are to submit themselves to the Lord's rule and the Lord's anointed, that they may not perish. Verse 12 shows us, or shows the sign of submission, which is a kiss. The nations are warned to fear and recognize the lordship of God Again, here in verse 12, we see the way of the wicked and the way of the blessed. Those who do not kiss the sun will perish. The way of the wicked will not last. They will be like the chaff in chapter 1. But the way of the blessed are those who do take refuge in him. Those who do bring themselves under submission to the rule of the king will find refuge in him. They will be like the planted tree by streams of water we saw in chapter 1. We are, we are called to take refuge in the sun from the storms and threats of this world. It is in Christ himself, or it is Christ himself, who said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The connection of this psalm to Christ cannot be emphasized enough. We could spend hours going through the, way, the ways Christ is the full realization of the Old Testament. But it's good to be reminded that our king is the one who conquers our enemies and will bring the nations under submission. We are blessed indeed to be able to come and take refuge in such a king. But Christ also conquered a different enemy than just the nations and the peoples of the earth. He was the king who conquered a different enemy than was expected. He came humble, and riding on a donkey. He did not come in his, ex, uh, his expected kingly fashion. The Father sent his only Son on the mission, on the mission of accomplishing everything that had uh, been expected from David and his sons. That is, obedience, and loyalty, integrity, justice, and righteousness. Only Jesus is the true fulfillment of these promises. He is the one who has conquered our greatest enemy. Sin and death. The immediate hearers of this would have looked for, and in many ways found, a king in the line of David that would conquer their enemies and bring them peace and security. But all these were foreshadows of the true king, the true son, Jesus. All of the Psalms have some sort of immediate fulfillment, whether it be David or Solomon or Moses, but all the Psalms find their ultimate realization In the true begotten of the Father, Jesus Christ, he has triumphed over his enemies by his death and resurrection. We were enemies of God, and it was Christ, our King, whose wrath we deserved. But he has conquered sin and death on our behalf. What looked like the greatest defeat, the Messiah, the King, the Anointed One, hanging on a cross was actually the greatest victory. Through the cross, Christ triumphed over his enemies. In fact, Colossians 2.14 puts it this way. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Christ is everything that the Psalms expect of Israel and the Davidic reign. He was without sin. He lived a perfect life of absolute loyalty to the Father, suffered the lot of the psalmists, was delivered by the Father from death, and has received divine retribution through his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into glory, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Therefore, all who take refuge in this King are truly blessed indeed. Amen. Let's pray. God in heaven, you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, and you have no rival. We thank you that while we were your enemies, through Christ Christ, We are brought into fellowship with you. We thank you that we can find our refuge in your anointed, Jesus Christ. Give us strength to meditate on doing righteousness rather than on our sinful desires. Let Christ our King be honored in our lives through your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.